Hello and welcome to a new episode of eWorklife, a podcast where we talk about productivity, well-being and work-life balance. We talk to scientists and others who can help us make the most of our technology to get our work done, to keep connected to others and to support our health and well-being. I'm Anna Cox, Professor of Human-Computer Interaction at UCL in London and your host for this episode. In today's episode, I'll be talking to Dave Cook, a digital anthropologist researching the practices of digital nomads. These are people who've taken remote working to the extreme by choosing to live in a different country from where they work. We talk about what the fallout from the dot-com boom and bust taught him about the importance of focusing on user experience, how he discovered his true calling as a research geek and his love of ethnographic approaches, and the paradoxical experience of digital nomads who are discovering that the work-related disciplines they initially wanted to escape are actually the ones that help them to create work-life boundaries and avoid burnout. But before that, let's listen to some top tips from our other guests about how we can use technology to survive the digital age. I'm Cathy Stavash, a lecturer at Cardiff University. My top tip for using technology at work is to switch off all your notifications. So I'm David Ellis. Uh, I'm an associate professor in information systems at the University of Bath. Uh, My top tip for using technology to get the best out of life is to try and align it with your own goals. So for example, a fitness tracker won't make you fit out the box, but it can still help. Now to today's guest. Dave Cook is a PhD candidate at UCL. His work explores the lives of self-described digital nomads who work out of co-working spaces in Southeast Asia. The research focuses on the work practices and routines that are required to sustain working on the road. So without any further delay, here's my conversation with Dave. Welcome, Dave. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Hi, Anna. How are you today? I'm good. I'm really good. I want to start by... uh, asking you kind of about how your career really started so perhaps um I know that your first degree was in graphic design at the Royal College of Art um, <laughs> how did you your research <laughs> so um so I want to know what led you to that at the beginning yeah so so my first degree um was in design and history of design so you know, that was, um, you know, my focus um, um, at the beginning. Um, and I won a scholarship to the Royal College of Art, which finally brought me down to London. I met lots of interesting people. And when I left the Royal College of Art, I started to work as a journalist. Um, so I started working in the design press and reviewing, uh, you know, technology and design so at that stage, was your interest in design quite broad or was it specifically about digital design? No, it was print design. I was mainly concerned with magazine design. And at the beginning of my career, I was obsessed with magazines like The Face and ID. It was a very early 90s. And then the obsession between fashion and graphic design and technology all melded together. I was kicking around London, going to cover up, um, you know, 
design launches and crazy stuff and and, and writing A to Zs of you know how technology was impacting culture and yeah so that was the kind of stuff I was doing back then. Okay, so that was that kind of your introduction to the kind of the world of digital technology then, kind of thinking of it in that sort of context. Yes, I was living in London and I had design skills and I had writing skills. So I was writing as um, working as a freelance designer and a freelance writer. And that's when I got involved in technology. So I got involved with bulletin boards and I got involved with this bulletin board called Freak, which was run by a guy called Chris Smith. And that was for underground coders. And because I had all of this experience working in style magazines, um, we came up with the idea of doing a gay online service and we got some funding from some drinks brands and we actually launched one of the first gay online services which is now forgotten which was called planet patrol (laughs) um so that was in the mid 90s i've forgotten about that (laughs) (laughs) i know that um your career took you towards um sort of like user experience and user design so can you tell us a bit about that journey about how that happened after the area that i've just spoken about working in all those different magazines i started working for something called a digital agency (laughs) There were like advertising agencies that started to specialise in digital. And um, that's where my career really started to kick off. So I was doing a little bit of HTML coding. I was doing a bit of graphic design. I was doing a bit of writing. I started working as a producer. And I did that for a number of years because the work in that area just grew exponentially in in, in the mid-90s. And it must have been quite exciting. It was really, really exciting. We had no idea uh, what we were doing, but big brands and companies were throwing money um, at this kind of stuff. There were four or five years where we were really working at this you know, sort of like digital frontier where everything um, felt possible. You worked in quite a few different organisations doing those sorts of roles before moving on to start your own business, What People Want. So what's the story behind why you started your own business? Before starting What People Want, I went from working at digital agencies um, and I got hired by the BBC to launch BBC Online. At the time, the Director General, John Burt, was calling online and the internet the third pillar of the BBC alongside radio and TV. But that really wasn't a sentiment that was shared by a lot of senior editors at the BBC who were calling it a flash in the pan. (laughs) I can remember, you know, being in my early mid-twenties and going into big meetings with big, scary editorial people at the BBC and trying to explain the internet to them. 
and most of the time just being looked at as if I was mad. So what sorts of things were you using the internet for, for the BBC at that time? Yeah, so I had two main jobs at the BBC. So I was the launch editor of bbc.co.uk, which was the public service arm. But before that, I um, was the launch editor of Beeb.com. And they were connected to the publishing arm of the BBC, which was BBC Worldwide. So we're talking magazines like Top Gear, Radio Times. And they saw it as a form of online publishing. So I worked there for a couple of years. And there were lots of people from digital agencies, from ad agencies... Um, and we did some really interesting work. I was actually poached by the public service arm. I stayed there for a year and a half, and then I left and I worked for the digital agency Razorfish, where I ended up being uh, um, head of user experience for all of their European offices. I spent a couple of years travelling all around Europe, working with designers and creative directors, and... Uh, writing job specs for things like interaction designer and uh, information designer. Um, all of those things that a lot of agencies now take for granted. But they, they hadn't exist before then when you were first writing them, like creating those new roles. No, and we were writing those job specs as well at the BBC. I remember actually at the BBC when we were launching BBC Online, it was at the same time that they were launching the new BBC logo. I remember talking to the branding agency and we said, look, we've got to kind of like find a way of I'm getting it low res so it's going to work over um, the kind of modems that people have and, you know, those kind of conversations. So kind of like people were thinking traditional print and media and not understanding that we couldn't do all of that stuff online. Um, some young people that are listening to this probably think this is crazy. <laughs> So it sounds as though um, because of the role you were doing at that point in time, you were really a, a bit of an interface yourself in terms of translating the digital world into concepts that people could understand where if they hadn't had much experience with it. So, for example, you know, what will work online? What can we do and what can't we do yet? Yes. And um, that was really most of the 90s for me, which was integrating these different cultures. When I went back to Razorfish and I took you know, a very, very senior role within that organisation, we were still managing that kind of integration. So we had, we, you know, we had um, across all of our different European offices, a lot of graphic designers who were fantastic in print, who still weren't great um, at um, translating that into design that was um, interactive. I can remember very detailed conversations about the difference between an interaction designer and an information designer. An information designer was designing something that happened on the page and it worked um in that moment in time when you were looking at the screen and an interaction designer would, for example, you know, design the, th the flow through a shopping cart. So we were still having those conversations, even when I started my professional practice in the early 2000s. So what led to you starting your own company in this space? 
Well, the very short answer to that is the dot-com crash. When I was saying earlier that we were making up all of this stuff in the late 90s and it was a digital frontier, that was very exciting. But we were also getting a lot of things wrong. In the very early days when we were doing interactive brochures at digital design agencies, we were making loads of stuff that people weren't using. You know, it wasn't appropriate for slow internet connections. And when the dot-com crash happened, there was a massive realisation that a lot of the stuff that we were making wasn't stuff that people wanted to use. So the really famous example is Boo.com. I don't know if you remember Boo.com, but they were a a fashion retailer and they really over-engineered and over-designed their site. And at the time, I used to call this over-exuberance of design digital baroque because there was just way too much design and it was about as far away from UX, user experience and accessibility as you could get. I was at Razorfish um, when um, the dot-com crash um, happened When that whole house of cards came tumbling down, it was really, really heartbreaking. And I can remember going on holiday to Australia and while I was on the plane having to um, write some kind of um, matrix about who we would keep um, and who we would have to get rid of. But it was all irrelevant in the end because um, the company went chapter 11 um, um, like so many others. So I went traveling for a year, actually. I was pretty burnt out and my mental health wasn't great. I wasn't looking after myself. Um, so I think that that came at a really good time for me. And, and so was it, did you come back from that year of traveling and say, right, I'm going to start my own company? I went backpacking for a year and I did a lot of things that I'd never done. I jumped out of a plane, I did the Inca Trail, I did lots of crazy things. But I spent a lot of time thinking what I really liked about what I'd been doing in my career so far. And it all came back to um, user experience, uh, research. And when I was at Razorfish, we created a department within what we called the user experience network or the experience network called user intelligence Uh, based on the really radical idea that we'd go out to people and ask them how they wanted to use things and watch how they use things so that we could create meaningful and intentional user experiences, to use a little bit of jargon. (laughs) And I basically held that idea with me for a whole year when I went travelling and I said, okay, well, this is you know, what I I want to do for the next phase of my career, and I'm still doing it now. What was it about that that you enjoyed? Because you said that you spent time thinking not just about what your skills were, but what you enjoyed doing. So what was it that kind of captured you? The short version of that story is I was a research geek and, you know, how that showed itself was that I just really like like talking to people. I'm, a, you know, a very, very sociable person. I'm very curious. Uh, I, I like to talk to people and I, out of those conversations, I, you know, like to turn them into design ideas and I realised that that was the kind of designer I was. And actually looking back at some of the really talented designers that I've worked with were designers um, who could leave their ego 
um, outside of the room and they had open hearts and open ears. And that's what a really good designer is. Um, you can have a really good, you, know, you can have a designer who is fantastic visually, but still creates stuff that people don't want to come to. Um, and you, you can obviously have designers um, that are visually poor, um, but, you know, want to communicate well. Um, but for me, a really, really good designer has both of those things. It's interesting hearing you talk about how the things that you enjoy are having conversations and listening to people and, uh, you know, and, and really being focused on that because there, there seems to me to be a bit of a thread there that kind of led you towards the area in which you're working now, um, in terms of digital anthropology. So, I know that that you you studied human computer interaction first formally and then went to digital anthropology. Um can you tell us a little bit about what the similarities and differences are between those two areas? If it's okay I'll kind of like come come at it with a little bit of a story. So when when we met I think it was roughly about 2005 I I'd done um, a, a postgrad at the UCL Interaction um, Centre. You know, as always, I had a desire to be curious, a des- desire to go deeper. That was that, that was a really fun um, time. So I was able to take all of that learning into my professional practice. The reason why I came to anthropology was because the research projects that I worked on with clients that really interested me most were things like the context studies and the diary studies and the ethnographic studies. Um, A lot of the work we do is looking at how people use products and services on the other side of a one-way mirror in the lab um, or now remote. And I really, really wanted to do more ethnographic projects. Um, You know, they they only come... They only come along every so often and they're quite expensive for clients as well. And when we do do them for clients, they typically go on for a few weeks, a month, if we're lucky. And I really had a desire to research something over months or a number of years that I could really get my teeth into something that I could understand and immerse myself in how did you discover digital anthropology because i think it's something that perhaps a lot of people wouldn't know exists as an area yeah so i did the digital anthropology masters at ucl so did you happen across that sort of by accident that that it existed as a course i chose i, I chose digital anthropology because I had a background in digital, I guess, I felt that doing digital anthropology made sense because I might be able to bring it back into my professional practice. So I thought that might be a conversation that went both ways. And and that was very much the case. Now, I wouldn't describe myself as a digital anthropologist, just describe myself as um just as an anthropologist with a psychology background. But that was my way into the discipline. Um, But I wanted to get into a research project where I was, you know, sort of like in the data. That's what I wanted to do. And the thing that drew me to anthropology was the research method, essentially, that um, you, you go somewhere 
um, and you immerse yourself in, in the culture and you might do interviews and you might do surveys, but the main focus of the research method is just to be there and you're not necessarily looking for an artificial encounter like an interview. Um, they just kind of unfold and present themselves to you naturally. And that's quite exciting and it's quite frustrating sometimes as well because you have to be very, very patient and, you know, things really do unfurl, you know, sort of like over time. And I've kind of like even um, gone to an extreme within that because I'm doing my PhD part-time. Um, my data collection um, window is seven years. <laughs> Normally it's a year um, for anthropology, but I did kind of intentionally design it that way because I wanted to understand not only what happened within a specific culture, um, I'm looking at, at digital nomads, but I wanted to look at people's individual trajectories and look at what happened over time. And that's been really, really useful um, coming into the pandemic because um, I you know, have a data set which is unique in that you know, these remote workers chose to be um, remote workers, but I've seen what happens to people over a number of months and years. So I really want to talk to you um, about your your research project now. And it seems like an optimal point for us to kind of dig into it a little bit. So um, ca- can you start by telling uh, the listeners what you mean by a digital nomad and what it is you've been focusing on? So digital nomad um, is a very contested term. And when I published my interim results last year, uh, one of the points that I made is that digital nomads can't agree what a digital nomad is. (laughs) And one one of the first things that I did was to create um, a diagram that tried to show how a digital nomad was different to a business traveller for example, or from a backpacker or from a tourist. The stereotype is that they are young millennial knowledge workers who've decided that they're tired of working in an office so can work digitally and remotely. So they go to places like um, Thailand or South America and they move from place to place while they're working. So the distinction between a business traveller and a digital nomad is a a business traveller will travel for work and then come back and digital nomads just work whilst they're traveling. So who are they typically working for? They tend to be not in, not entirely and I think this will change after the pandemic they tend to be freelancers or, or people that run small businesses that um, work in copywriting, graphic design, um, it's very common if you go to a co-working space um, in Thailand, which is where I, which is where I'm doing my research. There will be quite a few uh, computer coders. Um, some of the computer coders, because they used to being quite autonomous, because they work on very focused, deep tasks, are actually working for organisations. Um, and they're confident or belligerent enough to say, "Well, I can do my work anywhere. So if you think I'm good enough." Um, hire me under those conditions. <laughs> I've had a few of those conversations. Um, you know, and that's very interesting. 
Um, so that's the stereotype type. When I started going into the field in 2015, it was pretty much all white men. <laughs> and that has begun to change um, over the last two or three years when I've been hanging around co-working spaces um, in Thailand uh, the gender balance has started to change and um, you know I've seen you know people from different countries outside of the traditional European countries the UK um, America and Australia who tend to dominate in these co-working spaces um, or if they're working out of an Airbnb um, I've got more research participants who are, you know um, you know female women from Korea for example so that has that that's changing very very slowly and and I guess that's the kind of thing that um, because you're doing your research over a seven-year period you're able to document the, this kind of change which uh people working in outside of anthropology who are perhaps more likely to look at or conduct their studies over shorter periods of time wouldn't necessarily see this kind of thing evolving in the same way yes i mean i think that has been the real gift of this research project and uh it gets me up in the morning i'm so so excited um about it I you know I have to be careful about saying that I have any plans do any of us have any plans at the moment but I have an intention to go back into the field um, to go back to Thailand um, in uh, in the winter and um, um, do some more data collection it might be my my last uh, in-person data collection but I have been collecting data um, throughout um, the pandemic as well. And it's always been a hybrid project in that I've been um, going to Thailand and coming back. So I've been doing in-person research. I basically, when I'm there, I sit in co-working spaces and offices um, and Airbnbs and I just watch people work and have conversations about work. That's what I do. That's my research method, um, which might come across as quite strange um, uh, to some people. Um, but in order to keep in touch with my research participants over time, um, I can't always expect them to go back to the same co-working space or the same location or even the same city because they're nomadic so I am researching this diaspora that spread across the world and um, I've you know been doing that via zoom and via skype for a number of years now and that's been really interesting so that's I guess where the digital anthropology aspect comes in and before the pandemic digital anthropology was about studying the digital or um, using a digital research method. I think that's pretty much all of anthropology now, or it touches all of anthropology now. So that's another thing that's completely changed. And we were having conversations about, you know, what does digital anthropology really mean before the pandemic? It's going to be really interesting to see what um, the conversations turn to now. So the people that you've been studying, they are experienced remote workers. 
and and I guess you know for many people um being a remote worker is now something that that we might all say we have some experience or or at least many people who were previously based in offices when they were working and so I'm wondering if you can tell us some of the things that you have learned from studying the digital nomads and how you think that might be of use or might inform our understanding of people's experiences of switching suddenly to remote working during the pandemic. I'll start with the first distinction about what's different um, about a digital nomad to working from home or working remotely during the pandemic. And the first one is autonomy or choice. So pretty much everybody who I've met um, as a digital nomad, or you could call them an extreme remote worker, have done so by choice. And the reasons that they normally give um, for wanting to be a remote worker is some kind of generalised idea that they want to be free, free from the office, free from the nine to five, free from commuting. This language of freedom is, you know, really about autonomy and to be able to design and guide your own life. But what's been really interesting and what I found out when I published Interim Results just over a year ago now, that this type of freedom comes with a cost. I would say that out of the people that I've had direct interactions with, about 90% of them go home or they give up on the life, lifestyle as a permanent choice uh, in within the first year. So it's not for everyone. And when the pandemic hit and people were asking me what the experience of remote work or working from home was going to be I think I came across as a little bit of a Cassandra (laughs) where I said well you know um, a lot of burnout happens and it takes a lot of work and it's not for everyone but I think one of the things that is also very very evident in my research and I think people are experiencing now something changes when you do something day in day out and you do find your own way and you can simultaneously really like aspects of working from home and really hate other aspects of um, working from home. And, you know, I've done some research with you um, during the pandemic and we've interviewed people. And one of the things that I found really interesting in some of those interviews um, in the early lockdown, they were saying, um, you know, I really enjoy this aspect of my daily routine and I find it really, really difficult to um, manage all of my own time but I still don't want to go back into the office so I think one of the things that I found that really struck me about successful digital nomads that maintain the lifestyle permanently whilst not experiencing burnout is they are very self-disciplined and they go to co-working spaces, they journal um, every day, um, they practice mindfulness. When I first um, read through some of the interview transcripts of some of these elaborate um, self-discipline practices, I thought that they were a little bit much and I didn't fully understand them (laughs) um, when I first heard them. Um, It was like interviewing Jack Dorsey from Twitter um, and the kind of like stuff that, you know, re- you know, he famously does, you know, sort of 
you know, seven day Vipassana meditations, you know, these kind of extreme self-discipline practices. But as I've made my own way through the pandemic and, uh, and lockdowns, I've started to use a lot of these techniques more and more. So they seem quite exotic and quite distant from my everyday experience when I was studying them initially. And now they started to make more and more sense. So can you give us a flavour of your own practice here? Like, just tell us about perhaps one thing that you may be observed in your research and then you've adopted yourself and and perhaps any hints or tips you might have for anyone who might want to adopt it themselves i think the thing that's been most useful to me during the pandemic is a daily journaling practice i had a pretty solid journaling practice before um the pandemic and it's become um, a very strict daily practice i sometimes used to go days without journaling now I I journal every day. I didn't used to journal um, at weekends or when I went on holidays, and I'm now journaling then. What I get out of journaling is it enables me to create a distance between the thoughts and emotions that I have um, and how I am in the present moment. So I'm just kind of, it enables me to say, okay, I'm you know, feeling a little bit anxious or... I'm not getting that piece of work done. And just by writing it down, I can just be sitting here and I can say, okay, well, that's over there. What am I going to do about it? It just creates a little bit of distance. And um, I've only recently discovered that there's quite a lot of psychological research studies that have been done on um, a daily journaling practice. Um, So it's very, very similar to a mindfulness meditation where you just kind of like sit, stay in the present and observe um, feelings, positive or negative feelings that you might be experiencing to create some distance. So that's been really useful. And the other really useful thing about journaling practice is it encourages you to make small changes um, on a, um, a daily basis. So instead of just going on autopilot, uh, you say, okay, this is work. This isn't working for me. I'm going to make this change. And I think this is one of the things that a lot of people are learning um, during the pandemic. They were going into an office and all of this discipline was something that was happening outside of themselves. And now they're managing it all themselves now. So, um, you know, going into the office, you're, te- you're told when you have to be in the office and and uh, you know when you have to travel when you have to get on the tube these are all of the things that digital nomads ended up trying to um, reject but um, when they you know get to Thailand or when they get to South America they they start reenacting all of these things themselves to keep themselves afloat it's been so interesting to talk to you about this Um, and I will put uh, a link to a copy of your paper and some of the articles you've written in the show notes for this episode because I am sure that many of our listeners will be really interested to know more about your research. So thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you. Thanks so much to Dave Cook. You can find him on Twitter at I am Dave Cook. You can find links and show notes for this episode and our other episodes on our website, eworklife.co.uk. 
And you can find this and other episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening, then please subscribe. And as ever, we'd love it if you could give us a five star review. Until next time, take care and bye for now. I'd love to hear your feedback on this episode. You can find me on Twitter at Anna Cox underscore. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends. And you can also leave us a star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Claire Casson. This episode was sponsored by the EPSRC Get A Move On Network Plus. Music by scotthomesmusic.com. E-Work Life, powered by UCL Minds.